This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby's Nimer. Bacon. It was at the heart of a lot of controversy this week. The World Health Organization has classified bacon and other processed meats as carcinogenic and it placed them in the same category as cigarettes and asbestos. That created a media frenzy, and so did the backlash. Today, I'll get the sensible view from the Globe and Mail's health columnist, André Picard. And speaking of food, Yotam Otolenghi, one of the world's hottest chefs, was in Toronto this week. He spoke to me about the cuisine and culture of his home city, Jerusalem, and his role as a meat eater who glamorized vegetarian cuisine. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week, CARP chapter chairs from across the country gathered here at the Zoomerplex for the organization's annual general meeting. It's been a big year for CARP. Many of its objectives were recognized by the federal parties and included in their campaign platforms. And just this week, Canada Post decided to put those community mailboxes on hold. A big victory. Here's CARP President Moses Neimer. We had a good year in the sense that the general election just passed, focused a lot of attention on Zoomer-related issues. And as a function of the competitive nature of that campaign, all the parties came up with interesting offers Mm -hmm. for our membership. So now we've got to make sure that somebody delivers. The Liberals were very active in soliciting our support, made some good suggestions, good promises, and uh, we're now going to follow up and make sure that Justin delivers. It's one of the most iconic photographs of the 20th century, a Vietnamese girl naked and burning, running away from her village during a napalm strike. Now, over 40 years after that photo was taken, Kim Phuc is undergoing treatment to get rid of the scars she's lived with since that day. She's traveling from her home here in Canada to Miami's Dermatology and Laser Institute, where she's receiving state-of-the-art treatment that will smooth and soften the pale, thick scar tissue that runs up her left arm and covers nearly her entire back, something she didn't think was possible in her lifetime. So many years, I thought that I have no more scar, no more pain when I'm in heaven. Chinese Zoomers have something to look forward to. 
more grandkids. China's government has announced it will put an end to the decades-old one-child policy. Now couples will be allowed to have two children. The controversial policy was introduced in 1979 to slow population growth. It's estimated that over 400 million births have been prevented under the plan. But China's now aging population has created a need for change in order to balance the population. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Hashtag Je suis bacon. Hashtag bacon geddon. The latest report from the World Health Organization on the dangers of processed and red meat sparked a social media backlash, and a flurry of clarification followed the first sensational headlines. The International Panel of Experts convened by the WHO concluded that processed meat definitely causes cancer and red meat probably causes cancer. It made that determination after sifting through more than 800 studies and it has now classified processed meat as a carcinogen in the same category as cigarettes, asbestos, and plutonium. For a sensible take on what this really means, I reached Andre Picard, the Globe and Mail's public health reporter, at his office in Montreal. So, huge controversy, a storm over this latest report from the World Health Organization, uh, saying not only that processed meat causes cancer, but putting it in the same category as plutonium and cigarettes. Yeah, so it got a lot of uh, quite dramatic headlines, but uh, in the end, it's not something that's really new. We've known this for a while, the association between cancer and, and meat, and especially processed meat. And this notion of, you know, what category it goes in, I think it, that's just a misunderstanding of how this uh, cancer agency operates. So I, I think there's a bunch of stuff in there that's made for a, a perfect storm for some fun social media headlines. Doesn't it look alarmist for them to say, yes, we're putting processed meat in the same category as those other things? I think on the surface, it, it looks alarmist. But if you look at how they categorize things, it's, I, I think it's probably just an outdated model that doesn't lend itself to, to modern communication. But essentially, it's in a category of things that, yes, we're pretty sure they cause cancer. So there's no doubt that meat, like plutonium, uh, probably causes cancer. But what the, the scale fails to take into account is the proportion, you know. So if you get exposed to a large dose of radiation, you're almost certain to get cancer. If you eat meat, your increased risk is actually very, very small. You have a small risk of uh, this fo- focus mostly on colon cancer, fairly small risk in the first place. And then you have a, an increased risk of a small risk is still a, a quite a small risk. When they quantified that, they basically said that you will be increasing your risk if you eat as much as 50 grams of processed meat a day, which is two rashers of bacon and a, or a sausage. Yeah, so first of all, uh, again, it's the proportionality of the risk. So, yeah, you increase your risk, but it's not that big in the first place. You know, what really matters is the volume of stuff, your exposure is what really matters in, in cancer risk. So if you're eating a lot of meat every day, uh, yeah, you probably have a significant risk and you probably have a whole host of other health problems too. You know, we're focusing here on, on cancer, but there's a whole bunch of other reasons to not eat meat or not eat an excessive amount of meat. Okay, well, let's get back to the red meat that's not processed meat. So they classified that as something that probably causes cancer. What is the recommendation? How much red meat should we be eating? 
Well, so in this study, the the, the risk, which I stressed before, is not great, but the risk increases at about 100 grams per day, so about a four-ounce steak a day. So it's, you have to eat more red meat than processed meat to get to this risk. So that's the important part of that study. Uh, what a group like the Canadian Cancer Society says is try and limit your red meat consumption to uh, three days a week or less. So have a, have a mixed diet. One of the things that we've seen so much lately, huge portions... Yeah, we really suffer in in modern society from portion distortion. So, you know, a portion of meat is essentially the size of your palm. It's it's quite small. Do you think that coming out with this type of category is the best way to get people to focus in on this? No, I don't think so. You know, we have to, if you know the history of this agency, it was created in the early 70s. There were essentially scientists writing papers for other scientists. Uh, now we live in the internet age where we can access this stuff instantly. And I, they're just sort of out of touch, to be honest, in the in the way they communicate. So this makes perfect sense if you're uh, looking technically at what where to categorize products. And, you know, bear in mind they've over their history, this group has uh, analyzed about 800 products, and all of them cause cancer to varying degrees. So that, that's their job. Their job is to figure out what causes cancer and how much. Uh, and I think they do a good job of that, but they don't do a good job of communicating it to the to the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, just again, to look at the order of magnitude here, they've uh, parsed some numbers on on how many cancer deaths are caused. So they say tobacco smoking will cause about a million cancer deaths a year, alcohol 600,000, and diets high in processed meat about 34,000. This is around the world. Yeah, so that gives you a sense of, you know, compared to smoking, there's not really any comparison. And even compared to alcohol, which we don't talk about a lot, the cancer risks associated with that, it's it's a fraction of those other more common activities. Do you think that this could be some kind of tipping point where people will start taking these uh, reports and warnings with more and more of a grain of salt? I I would hope so, but I don't think so. (laughs) You know, we tend to, uh, we live especially in this media world today where uh, increasingly media companies raise their money by number of clicks. So it lends itself to social media exaggeration, these over-the-top hysterical headlines, unfortunately. It doesn't lend itself to a headline that says, you know, maybe you should cut back on the bacon a bit. That's not that interesting. So, yeah, I think we in the media have to take some blame, but uh, some of us also have to try and put things back into perspective. Okay. Andre Picard, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. I've been speaking with Andre Picard, the Globe and Mail's public health reporter. We'll continue on the food beat in just a moment with a conversation with internationally acclaimed chef Yotam Otolenghi. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. This week, I had the opportunity to meet a world-renowned chef and cookbook author I have admired for a long time. Jerusalem-born, London-based Yotam Otolenghi first came to prominence because of his new vegetarian column for The Guardian. His subsequent vegetarian cookbooks were hailed as revolutionary. But it was his book on the cuisine of Jerusalem that really caught my attention. He wrote it with his Palestinian partner, Sami Tamimi, and it became a worldwide sensation. I began our interview by showing him one of my first and most beloved cookbooks, 
which I got when I lived in Jerusalem as a student years ago. This is a book uh, from the 70s about Jerusalem. And this particular book, The Flavor of Jerusalem, I used it a lot when I was researching the book because there's not a lot of uh, literature about Jerusalem food. There's a couple of books that have been published over the years, but I used a lot of... I mean, it's funny because... um, um, I was given this book by someone, a friend. I didn't have it. And it looked just like yours. It was, it's, it's used. It looks exactly like this. Your book on Jerusalem cooking is fantastic. And um, what's your reaction to the kind of um, response that it got? Well, I, I was kind of surprised and happy in equal measures. I mean, I, I was, I never, uh, when Sammy and I was, were working on the book, we realized that we wanted to do something which is quite authentic as opposed to what we did the rest of the time, which means mainly cook our, you know, our own food, which has got some Middle Eastern ingredients, but definitely nothing traditional. Uh, so we wanted to kind of look back and try to understand where our taste buds started using traditional foods. But I thought that people would think that this is maybe a bit old school, in a sense, with Jerusalem, because those are things that are very familiar to me. I didn't think people would go and stuff vegetables because it's a lot of work. I didn't think, you know, that they're going to try and make falafel, because, again, this is quite a bit complex process. But I'm, I was shocked because of social media. I, was, I got like this kind of constant stream of emails and tweets and, and pictures of people cooking the, from the book. And then I started reading about cook, um, you know, dinner clubs and supper clubs and, uh, from Jerusalem. It was a complete shock to me. I, I remember, you just reminded me, of, I lived in Jerusalem for a while, in Tel Aviv for a while. In Tel Aviv, I had a roommate whose family was from Libya, whose mother was an amazing cook. Yeah. And she would make all these field things, mumulayim. Yeah. And, and I used to, it was, it was the 70s, so I used to think, oh, all those oppressed women sitting there all day <laughs> stuffing vegetables inside vegetables. I know, and, and it seemed like, and often in the book, I, we, Sammy and I tell the stories of the stuffed vegetables, because the story of the stuffed vegetables is the story of the city, because people had very little money, uh, but they wanted to get the most out of the food, and that's the, stuffing is the best thing you can do, because it takes very cheap ingredients, you know, a grain like rice or bulgur wheat, some cheap main meat and a, and a vegetable, and, and work very hard to make it look glorious, you know, that kind of after stuffing, it, it tastes amazing, and looks amazing. So... In every culture in Jerusalem essentially stuffs vegetables. And it's a great metaphor for the city. And like you're saying, you know, who would sit? But, you know, in the past, there was just no other way. You needed to work hard to make your food feel very special. I've always thought that, that cooking together could be the key to the peace in the Middle East. I wish if it was as easy as that, yeah, but it's not like that. Actually, yesterday I tweeted about a story that I read uh, somewhere that uh, a restaurant owner in Atania, which is a town in Israel, that uh, said that he would um, give a free hummus or a free something to every table that had a Jew and an Arab sitting together to eat. I saw that. And I thought that was really special. And I think, I mean, in a sense, I don't, I, I've always been saying that I mean, food is not enough to solve the problem, but food is definitely a good starting point. You, you have a partner who's Arab, but does it go further than that? Do you have a circle of both Israelis? And- uh, we're kind of a little bit isolated in, in London. We've got a lot of friends from everywhere, but no, we don't have a group. But, uh, but my friendship with Sammy is, has never been about forging a, you know, a contact with someone, with an enemy. It's, it's just always it just derived from us getting on and having similar interests. I have lots of friends who are vegetarians, and they 
love plenty mm-hmm. and, and plenty more. And the, the story is that you were asked to write a column, but you're not a vegetarian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that got me into a bit of trouble at the beginning because I think when I started, it was almost 10 years ago, writing a vegetarian column for The Guardian. Uh, some, someone discovered that I'm not actually a vegetarian. They got really pissed off because they thought that it's not fair that it's someone who's not a vegetarian. Why is it one of them and not one of us? And I think it's, it's very indicative of the attitude of vegetarianism of you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago where it was really kind of an exclusive club. Either you ate veg- or you didn't eat meat or you did. And then, and, but, I, but I think the world has really changed since. And re- these days, the people that want to eat vegetables are not exclusively at the vegetarians. I, mean, I think even omnivores want to eat more and more vegetables and introduce them to their diets. And I think the fact that I was not a vegetarian and writing a vegetarian column has actually really helped the vegetarian cause because uh, I, I had a, a wider range of, or, or maybe a wider perspective on, on the matter, and I think that really helped. I think it's very important to keep the dialogue going because what I think we can learn from old-school vegetarianism of 10, 20, 15 years ago, 30 years ago, is that it didn't help anyone. I mean, meat-eaters and vegetarians not having a dialogue is a very bad thing to do, and I think it's very important to keep, to keep that going. Yota Motolenghi was in town to promote his latest cookbook, Nopi, named after his landmark London restaurant, which is inspired by Malaysian cuisine. It's published by Appetite by Random House. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. An iconic British rocker has announced he is returning from retirement. We'll tell you who in just a moment. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. In New York City. 1979, you know what I made? 79, $96,000, John, for Murray, for Mitch. Look at the sheets. After huge success in Glengarry Glen Ross, Oscar and Tony Award winner Al Pacino returns to Broadway in a new play as a man with a large fortune and a young fiancé. China Doll is at the Schoenfeld Theater on West 45th Street. To the Windy City, where the life of Dionysus is explored in an exhibition of Greek and Roman sculptures. Dionysus Unmasked, Ancient Sculpture and Early Prince is at the Art Institute of Chicago. In London, England, Romance, Romance is two musicals for the price of one performed by the same cast. The production is based on two separate stories surrounding the same theme of different perspectives from the 19th century. It's at the Landor Theater. And in Japan, see a collection of works owned by Impressionist master Claude Monet at the time of his death at the age of 86. The exhibition is at the Tokyo Metropolitan Art Museum. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. Phil Collins is back. This week, the 64-year-old announced he is no longer retired. He shared the news in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine. Back in 2011, Collins announced that he was leaving music to be a full-time father to his two young sons. Now he says he's starting work on a new album because he wants those sons to know his work. Collins is one of the most successful musicians of all time, 
both with his band Genesis and as a solo artist. In fact, he is one of only three recording artists alongside Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson who have sold over 100 million albums worldwide, both as solo artists and as members of a band. Right now, we'll hear one of Phil Collins' biggest hits. It reached the top of the charts in both the UK and the US. Here is A Groovy Kind of Love. When I'm feeling That was Phil Collins with a groovy kind of love. This week, the 64-year-old announced he's working on a new album of original material, his first since 2002. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bandreel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air and The Garden Show.